advertising layered with technology gives us the opportunity to make consumers' lives better. And I think it's up to us to embrace that, to take risks, to reimagine what the world can look like, and to lean into it collectively. Because no one company is going to be able to do it alone. So I think it takes that collaboration and that coalition. But I also hope we don't fuck it up. Hello and welcome back to Identity Architects, the InfoSum podcast that spotlights the pioneers in the media industry that are changing the way that data is used to power better customer experiences. I'm your host, Ben Chiketti, and for this episode, our COO, Lauren Wetzel, sat down with Samantha Jacobson, Chief Strategy Officer at The Trade Desk, to discuss the evolving identity landscape, including UID and EUID, how companies are embracing the first-party data era, data privacy, retail media, and much, much more. Before we jump into that conversation, just a reminder to hit that subscribe button so you know when the latest episodes of Identity Architect land. But without any further delay, here's Lauren's chat with Samantha. Hi, Samantha. Welcome to Identity Architects. We're so thrilled to have you here. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's a pleasure to be here. Amazing. So for anyone who doesn't know you, and I feel bad for them, they should, uh, could you please kick us off with actually just a quick intro into who is Samantha Jacobson and the trade desk? But I actually think in particular, the role of chief strategy officer also is just getting more attention and coverage than I've seen in quite some time. So it's a, having a renaissance, if you will. Um, and I think the role of chief strategy officer actually differs company to company. So to help orient this identity architects audience, this infosum audience, who are you and what do you do? Perfect. Um, and I will limit my who I am to my work purview rather than <laughs> a lot of personal details. Uh, but at work, I'm the chief strategy officer at the trade desk. We are the largest independent DSP in the world. And I totally agree with your earlier comment. You know, chief strategy officer is one of the least clear titles that I've run into because it means so many things to so many people. Uh, my current purview is I run our global data partnerships team. I also oversee all things policy and all things identity for the trade desk. So it's much more than just ideas and thinking and planning, which I think a lot of people sort of characterize as strategy or I'm still a recovering management consultant. So I used to get that a lot, like where are the operational chops, like where's the execution, but identity and we'll unpack that today is, is quite a large component of, you know, not just today trade desk, but in the future as well. So it's, I'll be looking forward to hearing more about what that really means. Yep, absolutely. And I agree. I think, you know, getting stuck in the proverbial ivory tower thinking won't help anyone because what you imagine versus what reality looks like can sometimes be two very different things. And so I actually think one of the most beneficial parts of my job is that I'm on the hook, not not just to imagine what could be, but also to then deliver those particular strategies. And that's where I think we've seen the real success. Yeah, you're no longer strategy can't be MapQuest where you print directions once upon a time. It's got to be ways. It's like road closure, exactly. traffic jam, police up ahead. So I totally appreciate that. And that's why we're so excited to have you to actually, before we get into those thoughts on key industry topics um, and to get to know you a little bit better, I'm going to actually kick off with what I typically end, which is going to be some quick fire questions. So what is your earliest memory of advertising? Uh, I love this question. You know, I don't think we talk about it much. Uh, and so it took a little bit of reflection, but I would think my earliest memory of advertising is actually the Kool-Aid man. I don't know if I'm totally dating myself on this one, but those commercials, we didn't even drink Kool-Aid as kids, but I loved watching them on TV. And I think it speaks to how early marketers can make impressions on children. You know, I, as an adult, still have such vivid memories of that particular experience because it really resonated with me. I love that. And I do remember you're not, not dating okay. yourself. Although juice, I feel like now is like a whole other hot topic for, for parents and for kids. And totally. I don't think <laughs> my kids know that Kool-Aid exists and I'm grateful for that. So I'll take it. <laughs> what was your first job in either advertising or marketing? 
Um, so my first job out of college was working at American Express in their strategic planning group. So it's a lot of the retired consultants that got tired of being road warriors that looked across different parts of the business. So working with different leaders on different business units at American Express to solve some of their problems. And the first one that I worked on that I would kind of put in the marketing bucket was how American Express could be more relevant to younger individuals. So they found that while there was an aspirational component to the Centurion card or the Platinum card, the reality was that almost half of 20-year-olds, 20-somethings that would apply for an American Express card would be rejected because of credit issues. And so you can't have this aspirational brand end state and a negative consumer experience at the outset. And so it was a great learning experience. You know, They tried to launch something called the Pearl Card. I have to say, I don't think we were all that successful since it's not still around. Um, but part of it was you know, what types of perks or membership benefits would resonate with a different demographic. And then another component is how can you start to pave the way for brand loyalty, brand affinity, to kind of preserve that aspirational element, but also recognizing you need the volume of cardholders to support your business and the perception in market, which was a really interesting learning opportunity. That's so interesting. I even feel Amex almost gets categorized as like business stuff only. Like when I first, you know, launched into my career, it's just like, that's your corporate card. And then eventually your fancy card someday if you're lucky and work really hard. So I, I think that's a, a rightful problem uh, on your hands to solve and a really iconic brand to get to work on. Knowing what you know now, what would you say to yourself when you started your career, either at Amex or even before? Um, I, you know, I think that I didn't appreciate how important relationships are in all aspects of business. You know, and it's funny even just saying the iconic element of Amex's brand. My boss at the time was this guy named Bob who had started Diners Club, which was the first kind of credit card offering, um, or he had, he had worked there and had run that business. And he was actually Ken Chenault, the old Amex CEO's boss in a different life. And so just looking at the intersection of their relationship for how that working relationship came together is something I don't think I grasped or appreciated at the time. And of course, you know, that's only become more pronounced in our industry, especially. I feel like it's frequently musical chairs. Um, and so I think that interpersonal connection and recognizing that people matter a lot and people are the most important and I think the most fun part of any job. And so prioritizing those personal relationships to then figure out how to tackle hard problems together, or even if you're on different sides of a negotiation, I think having that interpersonal connection and recognizing it's just business and we're all doing our best is something for me, at least, that makes work a lot more fun. And that's the part that I like most about my job. But I think it took me a while to realize that, that it didn't matter how good you were at getting work done. It was all about relationships. And I think what you're saying about even in that dynamic of, you know, being someone's boss and then working on some additional project for them, I think it's like empathy is the core piece that ties it together, right? I say this in our industry, sometimes you're a vendor, sometimes you're a buyer, sometimes you're hiring, sometimes you're looking for a job. Um, I think there's a whole podcast we could unpack <laughs> On that topic, um, I worked in corporate development for a long time, and you're constantly looking at companies and now being in more of a scale up and looking at either whether it's fundraising or just sort of really trying to launch and pronounce a market. It's totally different sides. And I think it just is a reminder that you constantly have to think about you know, where someone's at and you know, at what stage in, you know, whether it's their career or what stage in their company um, as a reminder and, and to your point on relationship building, frankly, to just be more effective. Yeah. Well, and I think it's such an interesting point too of, you know, depending on what persona you are or like kind of what role you're playing at that time, you may have different leverage, different levels of seniority. And yet the irony is that we all benefit from collaboration. I mean, even competition, I think it, it spurs innovation and I think it's healthy for the industry. And so this view of like, oh, I'm, you know, the head cheese, if you will, and therefore yeah. I've got the power or, you know, like, I just think that's so unhealthy, but I think people can lose sight of it. And I think especially when you're in a certain role for a while, people can get complacent or see competition as bad. And I think that view that, you know, people are going to come at it with a different lens. And to your point around empathy is huge for just how we approach those, engage, approach those engagements with each other. Yeah, totally. And no one's untouchable. 
So <laughs> the roles always reverse at some point in this industry. Yeah. Um, what do you love about what you do right now? You have an amazing job. You're at such a critical time for not just the industry, but also just in the trajectory of the trade desk. Um, like, what do you love about what you do? I would say on a personal level, I love that no two days are the same. You know, I love that we have this constant change, this strive for innovation and for uh, doing the right thing. And I would say, you know, to me, on a professional level, even in a bigger picture, I love that the open internet is focused on giving space for diverse voices and ensuring that everybody has access to content and services. And I love that push of how can we work together and collaborate to create a better outcome for humanity. And as cheesy as it may sound, and I truly feel that way, I feel energized every day about what can we do to make things better instead of creating a fragmented and multi-party controlled system. Instead, this view of access and ability for creators to access uh, new consumers, I just love. I think it's really energizing. And kudos to the Trade Desk marketing team, because I also think as a B2B business, sometimes it's really difficult to create that orientation and that connection to the consumer and to remind everyone about the value exchange for the consumer. So it's almost stepping into your customer's shoes and that sort of dialogue on open internet and that dialogue on purpose and the dialogue on sort of why, um, which not just attracts really great talent and gets people sort of out of bed every morning and working really hard for that, you know, two days that don't ever look the same, which I also relate to and love. Um, I just think that, you know, at the trade desk that it's been incredibly effective, that messaging. And I think a lot of other companies across the industry have latched onto it in a good way, not latched on, meaning like a fast followership to your point on competition, but reminded themselves of that purpose. Um, and I think it, it actually really helps to make more effective partnerships happen. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, I think that Jeff really sets the tone of how can we make sure we're doing the right thing? as the driving force. And in so many of my other roles, the focus has been on capitalizing on margin or you know, securing revenue in a given deal. And of course, we want to do right by our shareholders, but there is such a philosophical drive of how can we you know, keep the open internet open? How can we make sure that we're respecting consumer privacy and choice? And I, I do really believe that we have put resources and hours behind trying to create industry-wide initiatives to benefit everyone. And, you know, we talk a lot about UAD2 right now, but UAD1 actually exists and goes back to the concept of cookie sharing. And it's still, I think, is driven by that same approach of rather than use assets for a competitive advantage, how can we make sure that the ecosystem cooperates and has enough to be able to float as an industry? And I think that view of how can we do more together? How can we create a larger pie is something that I've really valued. And that focus on honoring consumer principles, even when it's not, you know, the, the legal requirements, it's going above and beyond those, but it's in the spirit of what's right or the spirit of what makes the most sense. And how can we do so transparently and openly is something that really I find energizing personally. And I think it eventually does pay back the shareholders because doing what's right often is just also good for business. So I think that's a really, really great, um, Great point, but I also agree it totally starts at the top and you just have to be committed mm -hmm. um, and, and fairly resilient because it's it's not always going to see those immediate benefits along the way, especially when it's like, we're not just going to do what's compliant, but we're going to do what's right. Yeah. Um, on that topic of identity, we're sort of obsessed with it. Um, you're on identity architects, this concept of identity, the ability to identify individuals across devices and platforms, yada, yada, yada. But how would you, Samantha, explain the term identity to, let's say, a 10-year-old? Yep. Uh, I love this question. It's funny. I, I was thinking a lot about how I communicate with my eight-year-old because that's kind of- Or an eight-year-old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'll, he's very precocious. I'll round up to 10 when I think about interacting with him. Um, but you know, when I, I think about what I would tell Liam, it would be you know, when you're playing your game on your computer and then you switch to your iPad, don't you want to be at the same level? You know, or you're watching a show on your iPad and you switch over to the television, don't you want to pick up wild crats from where you were in that episode instead of starting over? And so to me, that ability to understand who someone is, is a sense of identity. And then my kids at least watch 
or they play these games on their iPads that have so many ads as part of them. And so, of course, we don't support advertising to anybody under the age of 18. Um, but if I were to talk to him about what that experience is like, you know, I, it's interesting to see when they have the ad breaks in the game, when there are ads that are tailored to their interests, so particular games or toys, they're really engaged. And sometimes they end up playing the advertisement game longer than the game that they had originally started. And to me, that's really effective advertising. Whereas when they have ads that are not correctly identifying them or speaking to their interests, they watch the countdown clock in terms of when they can connect to go back to their game. And so I think that user experience for when they're engaged versus when it's not resonating speaks to when we get identity correct or not in terms of speaking to that user. That's so true. And, and more often than not, we hear the complaints from family and friends who are like, oh, you must be the one, you know, in particular serving this ad. Why did I get it twice? Or you know, why do I get a Sonic commercial when I don't live anywhere near a Sonic? Um, you know, I think often we, we get all the negative uh, news reported on irrelevant experiences or, or bad, you know, ineffective uses of identity. Yeah. And I think there is a huge pull on scare tactics for consumer privacy. You know, um, I love that you get told, like, I don't live near Sonic. I don't know that my friend group is that aware. And instead, they just feel like there's this constant consumer surveillance of, you know, I had this conversation and now I'm seeing this ad, you know, that's very invasive for my privacy. Um, and yet, when we play out what that looks like, when you think about not having a sense of identity and you say, you know, do you want to receive 8,000 Viagra commercials? Like that's probably less relevant for them. Or yeah. you, know, you think about the cost that an advertiser is willing to pay without a sense of identity. And now you're stuck with all of these different pop-ups. You're going back, you know, 20 years in technology where you've got all of these interruptions. And I think that contrast is what's so helpful. And I do think connected TV has really brought that to life. When we look at an hour of linear programming where, you know, we think about shows in 30 minute and hour intervals. And now that we stream them, you realize, well, really it's like 20 or 40 minutes of content, but they had to pad in so many commercials. Whereas with connected television, when you can tailor your ad to that particular person across so many things beyond just demographics, you now can just have three or four minutes of advertisements for that same hour programming. So the consumer experience is better because ads are cut down significantly and the ads enrich their lifestyle. And so I do think it's interesting how much the narrative shifts when it's told from an ad tech perspective, which of course, you know, we're all going to have our own bias versus a legislative perspective, which frequently is like, do you want someone being aware of all of your information? And of course the answer is no. But then when yeah. you think through that of, do you want to pay for Google search? Do you want to pay for Facebook? Do you want to have 10 times the number of ads? The consumer experience is, you know, of course not. I definitely don't want that. And so I think that the reality will need to be in the middle. I think we need transparency and choice, but I do think that there are so many benefits that consumers receive without even being aware of it as a result of identity and ad tech. Yeah, and I think there's enough research that proves that consumers have a willingness to accept ads. I think to your point, the ability now for us to, you know, afford to run advertising in a unique and different way where it's not sort of the same slot that we all understood from a broadcast perspective. Yeah. Um, but it's almost also about that opportunity where you're engaging with the consumer and you're reminding them, hey, this is ads, but you know, do you want all the ads on the front end? Do you want them on the back end? You know, what type of ads do you like? You know, the the sort of interaction, I think, um, I think can be really effective when it's done right. Um, and, and I think is hugely different. I mean, you know, it's like before, it's like consumers never had even an opportunity to sort of weigh in. It was like Kool-Aid ads all day long. <laughs> totally. And yet the thing that I find so baffling is that our industry still measures using GRPs. Or we say, like, we understand that there's all this different behavior. We understand that there are better tools available to understand performance. And yet we see so many ads that are bought using demos or measured using the legacy tools on the back end. And I think that's one of the biggest points of frustration I have with our industry is that on panels, everyone says, you know, I understand that there's evolution in what that can be. And whether that's the emerging TV solutions like a video amp or an iSpot that help connect the dots, or, you know, we've created something called the retail sales index, which looks at actual conversions in stores to understand that performance. And yet so many marketers will say, 
I understand that, but this is how we've always done things. And so I do think we have a lot of work as an industry to be brave and be courageous to to continue to evolve that thinking rather than falling back on what we've done in the past, because the way consumers are consuming content is not the past and things of the past are not the limiting factors anymore. And so because we have so many more tools, I'm still, you know, I feel like every year, every panel starts with like, this is the year of measurement. And I, I still feel like we have- It's also the angriest that. topic. If you ever sit on an <laughs> It's definitely the one I, I find that gets the most heated and it's, it's, which is actually kind of refreshing to see like a lot of different opinions and, you know, sometimes it's just based on um, some of the limitations of our industry. But to your point, I do think there's alternatives and I think there's a whole surgence of technology, independent technology. There's a surgence of partnerships and consortiums. There's a surgence of built-in tools We'll get into first-party data. There's so much that that helps to fuel in terms of more relevant and modern measurement. But it is. It's definitely whenever I see a panel on measurement, it's uh, it's <laughs> it's going to be an exciting. That is. Do you have a guess as to what's causing that? It's. I think. Well, I mean, if you flash forward, I think measurement. I feel, at least within television, seem to always be sort of like wrapped into sort of broader data teams and not necessarily as pronounced as, you know, this is the new, we just hired this, you know, like think about NBCU. They're such a great example of this, like hiring, you know, really, really savvy, smart data science background and incredible executives like Kelly and Maggie and, um, you know, cheerleader for these amazing women in our industry, but, you know, they, they come with the experience from some of these legacy worlds and now they're coming and they're trying to course correct. And I, I think there's a passion that comes from that. Um, you know, I, I come from a world where I have seen companies get really reckless with data and, you know, reckless in terms of like, well, I'm just going to do it, you know, and hit my compliance. And I just don't believe in that. I believe that there's a way to balance, um, you know, doing right by the consumer, but also leading to really effective results. It's not just sort of one or the other. Um, and so I think it comes from just a place of passion, frankly. Yeah, no, I could see that. And I, I, you know, you kind of touched on it, but I also think organizational structure may play a role in that too, in terms of, Hey, I have belief in this, but this is my world, whether it's defined as programmatic or whether it's based on how the agency overlays and they don't have full control. And so some of it is trying to influence where others are then saying, okay, show me that it works here and then I'll consider it. And we're seeing the budget start to shift to mirror that. But I feel like the legacy organizational structures don't do much to help with that. And so maybe over time, those will start to morph a bit too. Totally. Um, three quick ones. What keeps you awake at night? Hopefully nothing. Is it my kids? Um, <laughs> Leo. Uh, you know, I, it's funny. I tend to take things pretty literally. And I I literally have a um, pen and pad next to my bed where I just write down like all the things I forget to do. And I think some of that is that we are juggling so much across the industry and there's so many different things and it moves so quickly. Just, just trying to keep up with all of it, you know, is a daunting task to say the least. But I, you know, in the spirit of the question, which I'm sure is more philosophical and less literal, um, I think some of it is accountability. You know, I think we talk a lot across different industry events, different panels around wanting to do the right thing, wanting to be more transparent, wanting to be above board in how we communicate with consumers and use data. And I worry that there are going to be a couple of not even intentionally bad actors, but people that skate in the gray area or go too close to the line that ruin it for the industry. And I think that's where a lot of the focus on legislation is coming in. You know, I think GDPR is a perfect example of having a positive intent, but because it is so nuanced and so complicated, the way it's executed falls so flat. So you think about wanting to make sure consumers are aware. And yet, you know, when you're in Europe all the time for work, I'm sure you realize it's like you go to a site and it's like, accept, accept, accept. It's like, I just get me out of this. I just want to read this article, you know, and that's not the intention of the law. The intention is to make sure consumers are aware, but I think it speaks to how we execute versus what's intended. And I do worry about making sure that a couple of companies that are either, you know, going to go out of business, so they need to do whatever they can to stay there, or whatever it may be, that that doesn't ruin it for the rest of us. And so I think just adding more 
auditability, more transparency will help with that. But that's probably the thing I worry about the most. I love that answer. And I, my sort of quick joke on Europe is just always like, it's like putting on a different costume to like speak to clients and partners there because of GDPR, but also just because GDPR has been around for now five plus years. It's, it's also that orientation to sort of like business operations to everything. And then in the US, it's just to your point on accountability. I just think it's, it's incredibly nuanced. It's incredibly and vastly different depending on, on who you're talking about, which just makes it more complex. So I, I like accountability a lot. What inspires you? Um, doing hard things. Um, and I would say, you know, on, on a personal level, I think new experiences really inspire me. So I love, you know, traveling. I love going to new countries. I love experiencing different cultures. I think getting out of my comfort zone um, is what I find really inspiring because it also gives me a new way of thinking about things. And I think that can then translate into work instead of operating within what we've done in the past and tweaking it. I think that view of what could we truly change? Like what could be monumentally different to change the ecosystem as a whole for the improvement is something that I find really energizing. And I'm really inspired when other people do that. I love that. And my final quick fire before we get into the- Sorry, I've totally gone off through. I know we're halfway through. No, I I love these answers. And it's just such a a clear indicator, like the proximity to everything that I, I think is sort of reserved for not quick fire, but it's also just entirely relevant and comes up. Um, but the question near and dear to my heart, every new team member who joins InfoSum in North America gets asked this question. So welcome to the family. Uh, and we formed quite an eclectic team playlist uh, because of this. But if there was one song that was a soundtrack to your life, what would it be? I would say Lizzo's Good As Hell, which, you know, I think that we're just at this point. I'm, I'm freaking out right now because my team, who's going to now already was going to listen to this, but I'm going to fast forward them. That that was my selection. Oh, really? So I was going to ask you what, what yours was because I feel like you ask everybody and I was curious for what you picked. So that's so funny. And it's, it's funny because I listen to a lot of different music and it happened to just be that day that I... I think it was like, you know, we just hired a lot of people. It was like three years back, um, early days of Info Summit. It's like, oh, what connects people? It's like, okay, music. Like, you know, we'll get like a playlist going. That'll be interesting. And then I forgot to really plan my answer, frankly. So I put everyone on the spot and then I was like, oh, vulnerability check. Like I should state my answer first. And it was sort of like what was on my playlist. But now I listen to it all the time and it's such like her whole album. But in general, um, that's a that's a great answer. I love that. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, I'll kick us off with the positive before we talk about the death of anything. Um, And the positive is first party data can just be incredibly impactful for all of an advertising. Um, I think we gave some good examples already on identity. And I love the way that you described it to your son, Liam. Um, And we're not here to argue that first party data is integral for marketing strategies today, even more important tomorrow. What do you, Samantha, recommend for every brand or advertiser or media owner, given first-party data is relevant to each of them? Like, what do they do now to prepare for this future where it is that much more important? Yep. I, I love this question. And I'm always surprised by how daunting many companies find this to be. And so I do like the Desmond Tutu quote, uh, you know, how do you eat an elephant? Or there's only one way to eat an elephant, one bite at a time. Um, and I do think that that really resonates when I have this conversation with so many marketers where they feel overwhelmed or they feel behind because there's this perception that everybody else has these amazing databases and everyone's talking about first party data. What are they going to do? Um, and so frequently that, you know, I, I really do just encourage them start, start someplace, right? So start now. And I think even those starting now have in some ways an advantage, ironically, because what a brand needs to secure in terms of permission and explaining the value exchange, I believe is different now than it was 20 years ago. And so I think there's a lot of brands that may sit on these legacy databases when, I mean, email marketing was the way of communication. And so the language that was used to collect consent may not be appropriate when we think about present day use cases. Um, Or when you think about the silos of information that exists within many of these large companies, I always find it so surprising when they say, well, we use four different cloud service providers and six different, you know, systems for operation. I mean, and that I think is a huge 
value add that InfoSum can provide to so many of these different companies in terms of let us help you pull your data into one place. Let us help you organize it so that you can actually use it to be as effective as possible. And then, of course, let us make sure that we've got the right pipes in place to activate it where it matters most. And so I think this view of how do I as a company pull together my data? Let me start now. How do I do it in an organized manner so that I can understand what's there? How can I use my dialogue with my consumer to my advantage, to explain what I'm doing, to leverage and preserve the trust that they've put into me as a brand. And then as I'm able to activate it, of course, how can I measure that performance? Um, and what we see, and, and I'm sure you all see this as well, is that first party data performs really, really well. I think there's a lot of other assets available when we look at the emergence of retail data or other offerings that also can complement that. Um, but I see it as a tool kit in a brand's arsenal that they should use, but that they need to protect because their consumer data is their crown jewel. But my biggest thing is to, to start because a lot of them are just feeling overwhelmed and feel like if they don't have it perfectly or if they have legacy silos, that it's just too much. And I think there's now a lot of tools and a lot of processes to make that easier for them to begin to activate against it. Yeah, there's examples. There's performant examples of other companies and in your same category who started their first party data journey earlier. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really, really relevant to this conversation today versus if we would have talked about this maybe even five years back. Um, to your point, it's like everyone looks at it like it's Everest and doesn't realize that there's a process that you can kind of go to make Everest that much more, um, you know, surmountable. Yeah. <laughs> um, EUID, UID, it's interesting because I feel like both of these terms have progressed in such a way, and you, you referenced 1.0 versus 2.0 earlier today. Um, normally I always look at acronyms and I'm like, oh, I'll have to explain it to the audience, but it's a testament to the fact that we have been talking about this for a while that I'll just reference them as is. We know Google's provided its third-party cookie deadline um, and full deprecation begins January, 2024. What is the significance and role of UID and EUID in that cookie list future? And how does the Trade Desk implement these identifiers to balance both privacy, and we've talked about that before, and effective targeting? Yeah, great, great question. A lot to unpack there. Um, you know, I think big picture, we as an industry have an opportunity, kind of like we were talking about earlier, to reimagine what the world should look like cookies are being used for a purpose that is different than what they were intended for. Um, and the reality is that consumer behavior has drastically evolved. So when I think about how I consume content, there may be cookies in some of those environments, but for the most part, it's you know streaming different audio offerings or um, playing on particular apps or watching television. And none of those places have cookies present. Uh, so I think, you know, first and foremost, it's how can we reimagine what the world should look like? But like we talked about earlier, in order for that world to work, we need some sort of connective tissue to understand consumer identity. And our view is that email is kind of the most benign piece of PII. I mean, we saw Brazil used to use the equivalent of social security numbers, which I found terrifying. You know, they've since passed privacy legislation. Um, and of course, I don't think anybody thinks that that's, that's the right piece of information to use in the US. But I think that email addresses are something where consumers can um, have multiple, they have control over it, but it's a way to provide your sense of identity um, in a in a transmissible piece of data, right? So I use my email address to log into an app. I use that same email address to log into my streaming provider. And so it allows for that connection, um, which is what UID2 and EUID provide. So I know you kind of referenced that they're well-known industry terms, but the reality is that UID2 and EUID are both based on consumer provided email or phone numbers. EUID is the same technology, it's just housed in Europe, and it has uh, different requirements to ensure that it is GDPR compliant. But at its core, it basically says, let's use that consumer piece of information as the key, if you will, to their identity. And I, 
I don't think that this is a unique concept. I mean, we're seeing it across the board. When I look at my use of Google products um, and then using Google's single sign-on across different websites, that's all anchored off of email address. When I look at my Apple ID, which is tied to my email address, you know, I'm entering that all the time every time I need to, you know, download something new. Um, and so I think that for as much as there had previously been dialogue around what is the right identifier, it seems pretty universal that Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, and the open internet are kind of coalescing around the value and persistence of email addresses while still giving consumers transparency and choice. Um, and so I think that the technology is important. We see it as a technical standard, a way for two companies to communicate when they have consumer provided data. But I also don't think it needs to be the only offering. So we're big proponents of like, there is not going to be one solution to rule them all. And instead, companies need to have interoperable technology. We recognize there's going to be a handful of IDs available. But to me, the Google decision specifically around Chrome, kind of independent of Google's actions, will add urgency and increased adoption um, for some providers, typically publishers who have maybe been um, strapped for resource development and trying to figure out what the right bets are to place in the short term for the monetization of their sites. But in some ways, you know, we've seen every major U.S. broadcast network adopt UID2. You know, we've seen the world's largest brands, whether it's Unilever, Procter & Gamble, um, HP, all adopt UID2. And so I, in a lot of ways, I don't think that brands are sitting back and waiting to see how things play out. I think there's already been this evolution. And I think that the Chrome conversation will only add legitimacy around those choices. I don't think it uh, changes any of that path forward. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I also, I agree. I think identity has, the past few years at least, there's just been so many new forms of identity and frankly, just identity companies. So if you think of like, you know, a architecture diagram or a, a Lumascape, the thing that's interesting, you look at the logos and some of our, them are companies that you can recognize. And it's like, one of these things are not like the other, like it's a credit bureau that has marketing services tied to it, which has so much different, you know, regulated stringency on sort of the collection of data and management of identity um, and therefore the uses within, you know, a marketing environment. Um, and then you see legacy CRM companies and they have, a form of identity. My kind of hot take is I think we're going to see a lot and then it's going to start to fade and we're going to see a few, um, you know, to your point, not just, you know, one, and it won't just be UID or, or EUID, but I think there'll be um, a few sustainable um, identity pieces out there. I agree. And I also think that there's going to be more clarity around the distinction between what is a technical standard for matching versus what is identity logic or householding logic that I believe the company got quote unquote correct. And I think that's where we're going to start to see that divergence. You know, I think right now the two get lumped together. And I think the reality is that um, my personal perspective is that having kind of email-based or phone-based identifiers will be the future that may be augmented with other signals whether mobile ad IDs still exist or whether um, there's additional pieces like contextual information in terms of where the ad is being run, I think all complement that. And then I think brands and uh, I guess across across the ecosystem, all personas will pick their kind of source of truth, if you will, of who do I think is getting it right when they group those different email addresses together to be a person and those people together to be a household. You know, And so I think that's that performance around how correct are they for that logic will start to separate from what technology should I use to understand identity. And I think the technology piece can almost be a commodity and that it, there doesn't need to be a cost for participation. I mean, UID2 is free, as is EUID. And the intention is just how do we have the same technical standard so that we're not using our correctness and identity as a point of differentiation. And instead that's table stakes. And then there's other forms of logic or unique attributes that are layered on top of it as the points of differentiation. Totally agree. What you mentioned this, um, and I liked how you mentioned it, you said cookies, you know, the intention of how cookies ended up being utilized in advertising wasn't their initial intention. And I, I kind of always look at it like it was just never sustainable for mm -hmm. what the industry sort of latched on um, to utilize it. But in your opinion, like who's responsible? Obviously, the trade desk is taking a, a, a major stance, but you're doing it alongside ensuring it's 
um, available for sort of all parties, but who's responsible for rebuilding this foundation of digital advertising so that we don't, you know, repeat sort of past mistakes and, and sort of the way that we went about, you know, data-driven advertising 1.0. Yep. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. And my view is, I think it, it the onus is on all of us. Um, you know, I was at Ad Week in Sydney, Australia a couple of weeks ago, and they had a panel on sustainability and they were, you know, asking who was responsible for climate change, kind of what ecosystem was the driver. I think the reality is it's everyone. And similarly, you know, here, I think we all need to feel a sense of responsibility because if we have a perspective of like, not my problem, someone else is going to fix it for me. I think that's when we'll run into trouble or a world entirely made up of a handful of walled gardens. Um, you know, I think that I love that Albert Einstein quote that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And so similarly, you know, I think if we put our heads down and say someone else will fix it for me, we're going to be sorely disappointed. I think the open Internet thrives because of collaboration. And I do think that sometimes we get our eye off the ball and we focus on you know, this person's doing this for their business or I'm doing this for mine. And I think instead it needs to be a bigger picture of what is the most effective path forward for consumers? How can we build an ecosystem focused on transparency, focused on choice, focused on access? And I think if we start with those core tenants and build around it, we'll end up in a much better place, but it will take participation and collaboration from everyone, which may be more uncomfortable for some than others. Yeah, when you said what keeps you up at night and you said accountability, mine was going to be collaboration, but I actually like accountability. And I think they kind of meet in the middle because it's you have to have a willingness to sort of want to, you know, set the standards and, you know, set a point of view and sort of agree on, hey, that didn't work in the past or that wasn't sustainable. Now let's try and, you know, carve a future together because you do need across this sort of vast supply chain, everyone to sort of understand and, and say, yes. I always joke within data collaboration, one of the biggest challenges is just timing for everyone. We talked about it earlier with first party data, like were you, you know, did you have a, you know, consent based data, you know, management strategy two years ago, or did you just get started? And, you know, for everyone to sort of work together, you know, you need timelines to line up. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges, but I think um, the answer to that, frankly, is, is what you said, which is accountability. And I think it's recognizing that um, the way that we went about this before wasn't right, recognizing that this is still about the consumer, recognizing that a lot of the methods we can all agree to are really positive for the consumer and we can kind of get it right this this the second time around. Yep. And I even think in your business, you know, you guys probably see it so acutely where in order for your platform to be as effective as possible, you have to be able to plug into so many different types of data ecosystems and everyone has their own perspective on the right way to structure things or the right tools to use. And yet you've bridged that gap. You've said, no problem, we'll help create that connective tissue because we understand the importance of it while still having the right tools so that some can have control when it's really important to them. Others may not care as much about that. And so I think having the list of offerings and figuring out how to bring them all together to work together is so important. And yet you've done it really successfully. And so I think there's probably a lot of learnings there that we as an industry could benefit on too, of how do you paint the picture for the end state, which I think a lot of people will kind of head nod and agree, and agree like, yes, that's a better outcome. But then how do we actually create the path to getting there, even when it may mean short-term pains as we make those compromises or as we put the right connective tissue in place. And I think that's going to be the balance is that we need to stop being so short-term focused and think about what the long-term end goal is. I totally agree. And I think my learnings on it is, is twofold. I think a lot of it is just sharing knowledge, like knowledge is power and not looking at everything. You know, I, I, I kind of look at data collaboration more broadly as an all boats rise situation. I look at redoing data-driven advertising in a, not just privacy compliant, but a pro-consumer privacy by default manner, yep. um, you know, is is right. And it's going to take, you know, this, this is what InfoSum has been doing. This is sort of our approach to privacy enhancing technology. This is what's worked for us. I think the, the second thing is discipline. I think it's it's not doing the, the really quick, you know, migration or pivot. It's, you know, we have plenty of, you know, clients and partners who just want us to sort of own identity at times. And it's it's just discipline to say, no, those, those are going to be partnerships and those are, 
you know, going to, we're going to be agnostic. Um, I think that that's his discipline and, and managing expectations with our clients, with the industry, you know, with sort of trade bodies, with our board, frankly. Um, and, you know, cause I, I can see that long-term vision. Um, I was a client before I joined. Um, I would say my biggest learning is it just, it, it didn't happen as, as, quickly as I thought it would, you know, this notion of change, this notion of companies thinking about first party data a little bit differently, um, you know, and then even regulation and other things, the way that it's happened in other markets like Europe. Um, so I think that that's been the biggest surprise. Yeah. And as a strategist, that's frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think you play such a helpful role of translation between those entities. So even to your point of, hey, we're agnostic, you'll, you customer X will need to make that decision. I find, and I'm sure you run into this all the time is, you know, we're thinking about this all day long. So, you know, I love talking about identity. My husband was so tired of hearing about it because he does not care as much as I do. Um, but, you know, I think that we as an industry focus on pieces so much that we are intimately aware of pros and cons and how it works. And frequently marketers have this as a sliver of the rest of their purview. And so they'll say, you know, I'll have a lot of conversations where they'll come and say, I've had five different people pitch me. They all told me that they are the best thing ever. You know, they are the flying unicorns. And yet I don't understand why one is better than the other or how they work. And so half of my time is spent like, let's just whiteboard. You know, let's just talk about what is really happening in each of these scenarios. What assets do they have? How are they making these determinations? And I would think it's probably similar for you where clients will say, okay, I need to pick a provider for this particular capability, but how do I think about the two dozen? And it's certainly not to say that you need to have a preference of like, oh, this is you know the, the one you should choose because the correct one may be different depending on where a brand is in their life cycle, who their customers are, what they're trying to message across. But the reality is that they need help deciphering all of it. And you have that unique expertise to help them at least put it into layman's terms because we are an industry full of three letter acronyms and all sorts of, uh, you know, labels that continually change, even if the product doesn't change that much. And it's really confusing for people. And so I would think that that ability for you to help customers translate would be invaluable to them. Yeah, we do it. I, I also joke that one of the biggest winners on data collaboration or just this transformation of data-driven advertising is consultants. You said it, which is acronyms. <laughs> translation, um, you know, and you start to see these like really great across a lot of firms and, and within agencies as well, just like, you know, this, these sort of knowledge hubs to do exactly what you just said. Um, and it helps because, you know, we partner with them as well, just purely on education mm -hmm. a lot of times, which is to your point, you know, half of the job is not just, this is what we do. This is the offering, this is the value, but it's also, and this is not what we do, but like, let me give you my point of view on on how I would go about it, which is a perfect segue on just like technologies, emerging technologies more broadly. Um, like what's exciting you? Obviously data collaboration technology and data clean rooms, um, but also like what else is new that's out there? What's still missing that would be great to have? We mentioned, you know, a lot of solves and a lot of challenges, measurement being one of them, identity, obviously, privacy, et cetera. Um, what haven't we touched on? Um, well, I think there's a whole host of products from a consumer lens that I find exciting, like self-driving cars and smart appliance technology, <laughs> but I won't go so far off the path. Um, but I will say the other thing that we haven't touched on as much that I am really excited about is the role that retail data is playing in this evolution. You know, I think that totally. retailers have historically focused on their on-site business um, when they look at how to monetize their inventory or apply their data to very controlled pockets of inventory. And now we're seeing that being unleashed. They recognize that buyers want to understand um, how consumers are behaving across all of these outlets. If I'm selling Tide Pods, I don't want to just look at one retailer. I want to understand how consumers are buying Tide Pods wherever I have them on the shelves. And I love the influx and the flexibility that we're seeing in that space. Um, we're seeing, you know, I mentioned a bit earlier, our retail sales index, but the fact that we have multiple retailers sending in their conversion data to say, here's who's transacting in our store, pull it together in one column so that Procter & Gamble or, you know, Advertiser X can understand that behavior instead of having to look at my report versus somebody else's versus somebody else's, and they can then optimize in flight against those data signals, I think is really exciting. I know that retail media is such a hot buzzword, but I do think that 
the intersection of the scaled assets they have, the sophistication and data capture, coupled with the consumer privacy and that direct consumer relationship for a more transparent engagement will be one of the most important levers as we think about offerings going forward. I totally think that um, it's some of the greatest innovative uses, frankly, of data cleanroom tech that we've seen, um, in particular, sort of the intersection of retailers and CTV yeah. and creating like really unique, because I always think, don't think of data collaboration technology as, you know, just replacing things that we did before. Think of like the partnerships you never had, the, the sort of, you know, customer journey you never had access to. Think about everything that's innovative and new. Um, and I think retailers have really taken a bite out of that apple. But I also think what's really exciting is all of the, in quote, media network that comes next. So sports media network, we talk all the time about just using that same retail media playbook, but then for other verticals and segments, which I think is also really exciting. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think it'll be interesting, you know, when we look at connected television Obviously, the CPMs are significantly higher than traditional display. And so because marketers are spending more money to reach me in that moment, they want to make sure they're really effective. So I think data and identity are critical. But I also love the flexibility in the medium to tell a message or tell a story to a consumer. Um, and I know it's such a cliche buzzword to even include the letters AI, but I do think when we look at the creative curation engines where they can tailor the message to me, which may be different than your message for the same product. I mean, even the fact, you know, I always give the example of like, selling me a sports car is not going to be very effective unless I'm going to duct tape one of the kids to the roof because we've got five children. Like I'm much more in the market for an SUV or a minivan. <laughs> and yet my brother who has no kids would much prefer the sports car. Right. And so I think that how do you tell the story of like, he wants to go off-roading and I want to go to the grocery store, whatever it may be. Um, I think that the expense is there from a media perspective, but that the content creation or the ad creation will be more affordable and the data will be more important than ever when we think about what that consumer experience looks like. I love that. I also love that you always, when you give examples, and I, I listened to a few of your podcasts before, and it's just so welcomed on sort of anyone in this industry, the way that you translate it to a way I could talk to my sister who's a lawyer and a motion capture animator or my husband who works in pharma. Um, it's just incredibly refreshing. Uh, we need more of that. Thank you. <laughs> because also, your siblings seem to have really cool professions. I'm like that. We should they have are. I'm like a on. huge disappointment. Believe me. <laughs> it's a, it's a youngest child complex. Um, <laughs> you know, they are, they need to be on this podcast actually. Um, what would uh, be your prediction for the future of data collaboration and privacy? Where do you see the industry in the next five to 10 years? And what are you most excited about? Couldn't, couldn't be a podcast with a strategist without a five to 10 year horizon question. <laughs> well, you know, we've talked a bit about the reinforcement of some walled gardens. I think more will continue to crumble. Uh, and, and crumble is such a negative term. You know, I think the fact that Roku and formerly known as Twitter, now the artist known as X has opened up. You know, I think that um, that's healthy and I think that it benefits the entire ecosystem. So I, I do think that more of that will happen. Um, I think we just have such an opportunity ahead of us to change the ecosystem. I think that advertising has been around, you know, for ages and ages and ages. Um, and I think that we advertising layered with technology gives us the opportunity to make consumers' lives better. And I think it's up to us to embrace that, to take risks, to reimagine what the world can look like, and to lean into it collectively. Because no one company is going to be able to do it alone. And so I think it takes that collaboration and that coalition, but I also hope we don't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. What, uh, what have we not talked about um, or what, is, what are other topics do you want to say that we haven't mentioned? Anything you want to add? I feel like we covered a lot of ground, which I'm really grateful for. Um, I just love the way you and InfoSum have approached the business of what's missing, how can we add value, 
what can we do that doesn't exist today? And I think that's so helpful for us as an industry. I think so frequently companies will focus on, you know, this company is seeing success in this area. So let me go do it also. So we have a lot of me too's. And I think it takes a lot of courage and vision to be that trailblazer of what else could make this better. And so I would just hope that we collectively as an industry spend time thinking about that, of what could we do differently to create a better environment as opposed to trying to ride the proverbial coattails of others without having that reimagination. I agree. We always talk about the origin of the Infosum name. It's the sum is greater than its parts. And a lot of it came from this notion of understanding the power that wall gardens have. And so when you said wall gardens crumbling, I kind of think it almost as this technology can help provide the right routes in and out of, in a trusted way, walled gardens. So that when you think of it from running really effective marketing campaigns and the biggest challenge has just been fluidity, frankly, across walled gardens to open internet to um, you know, now the, the new sort of rise of retail media networks, which some consider walled gardens, I think it's all about how do you create fluidity across all of them without compromising on, um, you know, the ability and, and you know, to protect and, and manage not just the data, but the consumer relationship, because ultimately that fluidity is the consumer relationship. You said it at the start. It's oh. I want to move from my game and be in the same place. I want to be able to sort of you know, go from room to room or device to device. And, you know, I want, you know, the right sort of messaging at the right time. I think it wouldn't be a podcast and advertising if we didn't say that phrase. Um, <laughs> but it's it's funny we have to still say it because it seems like we still um, have a ways to go. And I think uh, identity architects like yourself are, are paving that way. Yeah, I, I think it's so interesting. And the other thing, you know, that's inherent in everything we've talked about that I know you guys provide in spades is the security component. I'm still surprised when we talk about company data leaks to this day, where we have the technology to hash information to make sure that it is tokenized so that brands or companies can still get the benefit of understanding their consumer without storing that data in a raw format. And I just feel like something that we in ad tech take for granted as table stakes for any offering. And yet, I, mean, I just got a letter last week about information being compromised because of you know somebody hacking into a vendor. And so I think that's there are things like that also that I think we don't talk about because they're not glamorous or sexy, but are things that we can do to help improve consumer trust and confidence as a baseline and then build the bells and whistles on top of it. Yeah, I think it's for us, it's much more of a, a message. I mean, one, privacy and security are two totally different you know, topics. And I think to your point, security hasn't gotten as much of the limelight, but that's a CEO responsibility. If you're in any level of a data business, which almost every business is, you know, that is a CEO risk reputation, right. <laughs> you know, to, to sort of be a part of that, that headline. And again, to your point on scare tactics, that's not usually how I like to start, you know, by, but it's, <laughs> I, I think we all think it, it's those who are intentionally doing something with your data. And, and most of the time it's the unintentional. And so it's like, how do you just ensure that by default, you're not ever, you know, risking leakage, misuse, um, you know, or just any level of whether intentional or um, unintentional. It's just, it's just not worth it. And, you know, your consumers remember that. I, I still don't think, you know, there's, I, I can go off in the name and I won't for the sake of this podcast or, or clients or future partners or future clients, but those names, they stick out in your mind, yeah. um, whether you heard about it just reading the news or whether you were personally impacted. And, you know, I, I just think that recovery road is really, really challenging. Yep. Totally agree. Um, so this podcast is about the individuals who have pioneered new ways to use data to deliver those better customer experiences we just talked about. Um, these are the identity architects like yourself. So when you look to people that you admire in this industry, who would you nominate for us to interview in an upcoming episode? Which I will give our, our team who wrote this question very early on in the, the sort of launch of identity architects. It's gotten to some really great uh, connections, like not just, you know, like we've met some really great people. We've connected uh, just because someone's recommended a name and brought some great people onto this podcast. So without further ado. <laughs> and I should have done a better job of going through the archives because you guys have talked to so many amazing people. I just watched or listened to the last like half dozen or so. Um, but have you guys talked to Christy Argalon yet? We have not, but I love Christy and so, she yeah. would be 
perfect. I think she's an amazing person. And she, to me, you know, she, so for those listening who don't know who Christy is, she's the head of the Albertsons Media Collective. Um, but she's someone where she came into her role and you know, she's been in the industry for a long time and said, we are behind. And she's such a great uh, personification of rather than just following what other people have done, how can I use this to my advantage? How can I reimagine what the ecosystem should look like and what could we do to make it better and to make our data more valuable for our manufacturers, for our product suppliers? Um, and she's just been, in my opinion, very bold, very courageous, and very smart about how she's approached that um, while doing it in a very collaborative manner uh, and a very innovative, innovative way. And so she's someone that I would recommend. I think she's a total superstar. I love that. And both you and her have in common that you talk a lot about your teams and your talented individuals. I've always noticed that about the both of you, actually, like where the, the great success of the trade desk is attributed to, you know, a lot of the different individuals who work within your team. So I've people recognize that. And Christy, <laughs> I really appreciate that. I just feel grateful and I feel grateful to get to work with amazing people like Christy, like you. So makes coming to work fun every single day. Amazing. Samantha, this has been fantastic. Thank you for educating us. Thank you for being an identity architect, but also a pioneer in our space. Uh, couldn't have asked for a better guest. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks again to Samantha for joining us on Identity Architects. That was an awesome episode and an amazing conversation. I loved how often Samantha brought the conversation back to the consumer and their experience on the open web. All that leaves for me to do is to remind you to hit that subscribe button so you know when the next episode of Identity Architects lands. But until then, thanks for listening.